0: Just listen to music and get out of the practice room, because that's how you really get exposed to stuff that is going to give you a sense of that musicality. I will say this, too, though. There were some people who said when I was young that – which this never occurred to me as a problem that I had, but apparently some people did think that I wasn't as musical when I played when I was young, because I think I was too much in my head of – just trying to accomplish everything at the instrument trying to play all the right notes trying to make sure i play all the right dynamics trying to make sure everything was right there and as i've gotten more comfortable at the instrument as i've gotten older i feel a lot more freedom to just express myself and make things just more beautiful people to listen to and more relatable
1: Welcome to St. Louis In Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast originates from and connects the Gateway City to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. That you're listening today because we have American Penis Brian Woods in studio and he's going to be performing on the In Studio Steinway shortly. (laughs) He's been a (laughs) compelling artist over the course of the last several years. He's a native of St. Louis, recently enjoyed his solo debut in Kerner Hall in Toronto, Ontario. As well, he had a debut with the Chamber Music Society of St. Louis on a program with nonetheless maestro leonard slatkin
2: holy moly
1: yeah i i I enjoy uh, maestro slatkin (laughs) yeah brian's enjoyed great success in competitions around the world he did his debut concerto performance at age 18 Solo recitals around the country and internationally also and he holds (laughs) degrees from vanderbilt university the university of missouri kansas city and shenandoah university brian welcome to st louis in tune wow thank you for having me guys
2: bandy guy and he's a show-off.
1: All that stuff you just read about him at 18.
2: This must be a natural. He's a natural. Are you a natural pianist? I hope so. I'm in the wrong field if I'm not.
0: So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when did it all start? Yeah.
0: That's a good question. I a lot of kids take piano when they're young. and Forced to. Uh, yeah. I was, I was forced. There's And there's a lot of music in my family. My mom's side of the family, her grandfather was a conductor. His name was George Wilson. And he worked as the director for many years of the Interlochen right. Arts Camp up in he Michigan. He was big with Interlochen. Yeah, yeah, he was. And my mom was a violinist and but not professionally. Aww. She just she studied when she was in high school and decided not to pursue it. And my grandmother was a pianist on my mom's side was a pianist. And she Studied it in school, never really thought of it as a major career thing. She became a, a teacher here in Webster groves but the, and my dad's side of the family his mom was Harriet Woods, who was right. the lieutenant governor oh, okay. here in Missouri. And she was of an amateur violinist. She studied and she played very well. And my dad claims he took some piano lessons when he was a kid. I'm not sure how many he did, but Great. he likes Great. to think. We know but anyway, know. so music's in the family in, in, in many ways. And I took lessons when I was a kid. My mom's mom taught me lessons just for a while. And it was just something that I liked to do. And mm-hmm. it wasn't something I really thought of as a career path, even going into Undergrad at Vanderbilt, I really deliberately did not go to a conservatory setting. I wanted to go to a liberal arts school Mm -hmm. setting so that I was doing, um, that made my parents a lot happier too, that I was (laughs) not (laughs) not getting a little bit more of a broader education in my undergrad. And I went to the Blair School of Music there, which was um, an only undergrad music school. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about that was I got so many opportunities that I would have normally been losing out to graduate students people who were older than me so I got to win their concerto competition and play with the orchestra when I was 18 there and that was my debut with them and these things just started piling up and again I never really woke up one day and said I really want to be a performer that's what I want to do it things just kept I kept finding success in many ways. So it was one of those, I know it sounds silly to say, but it chose me. In terms of the the career started laying it out it, and it really started unfolding. Back in 2015, I met Irish pianist. His name is John O'Connor mm-hmm. and he's an extremely classical pianist around the world. He's one of the most foremost beethoven interpreters on the planet okay. and i met him through a friend of mine and i played for him and he said he wanted to take me on as a student well wow. and um, so I, that's where i studied with him at shenandoah in virginia wow. and then recently uh, after i was finishing my time in virginia he said why don't you come up to toronto to study with me at the royal conservatory of music and that's where i've been until recently i moved back to st louis this summer but because of john and his presence in not just north america but europe and asia I've been really all around the world in many different ways because he opened up a lot of doors for me. But he's been great and a supportive mentor. And I've been really appreciative also of the St. Louis community for giving me a lot of opportunities. So here I am. I just did a tour last month around the Midwest performing solo recitals. And Mm -hmm. I could not be feeling more fortunate with we're still dealing with a lot of pandemic stuff. And there's a lot going on. It's been a really hard time for us performers. But the fact that I'm able to hit the road and give concerts and... All that jazz is really fantastic. So I could not be happier with how things were going.
1: So I want to go back. Do you remember the seeing a piano in your parents' home?
0: Yeah, I think Grandma Harriet. We called her Mama, but mm-hmm. I think Grandma Harriet and my family went in on a just a yin Yamaha upright piano mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. had. And my dad still has this piano. So when I'm when I'm at my dad's, my parents are separated, so my mom lives out in ball when my dad lives in the loop. And when I'm at my dad's, that's still the piano that he has. So when I'm practicing at my dad's it's the same piano. Wow. And um it's. I, I grew up playing it, and again, it wasn't something that any of us thought I was going to do professionally. You remember I sitting
1: was... down as a kid and just tinkering around? Sure. My I have an older brother and a
0: younger sister, so my older brother Tim took lessons. All three of us took lessons from my grandmother on my mom's side, and I just I remember being so jealous of my brother. I just wanted to do everything that he did when I was growing up. If he's gonna play piano. I should play piano too. And I was the one that it really stuck with. And both my siblings loved their music lessons and they love music in many shapes and forms. My sister has a gorgeous singing voice and my brother sang in a choir and I really enjoyed that. So they're all musical in in their own Mm -hmm. way. I think I was just the one that it stuck with. But my mom, I I actually learned by ear for my first almost, I don't know, I want to say, eight years of piano playing. So my grandma would just play something wow. and I'd play it back or as best I could. And that's all I really did. And I, it wasn't until I think I was 10 that I went to the Webster university has a piano mm-hmm. summer camp thing mm-hmm. that they do. And Donna Vince, who teaches over there, who actually ended up being my, one of my high school teachers, I went and played for them and she said, he plays really well. And my mom said, Oh, he can't read music. Wow. And they said, he needs to read music before he comes to the summer right. camp. All right. So I, uh, My mom gave me a little notepad and she just wrote out the staff with the, with Mm -hmm. the letter names on it. And I just taught myself how to read music because I wanted to read music. And so that was one of those things that I just wanted, really wanted to do. So I have a very, I, I, I like to say abnormal for someone who plays professionally as I do. Normally you hear about these kids who from the very beginning, they were super serious about it and they were practicing eight hours a day and all that sort of thing. And for me, it was like they had to make me practice when I was younger and it wasn't until I got more into my adult life that I got really excited about I always loved music but just the, the discipline of the practice and the performing and putting together programs and all that stuff that really came later in life for me so I always say I'm a
2: very proud late bloomer when it comes oh, to my, my
0: music career you know
2: you know what when I was young my grandmother I don't maybe it was the grandmother's she played by ear- mm-hmm. I found many older folks played by ear there was not many that played with music or by that could read music rather. I always wanted to play by ear. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. I think that's a tough thing to do, to try to learn how to play oh, yeah. an instrument it, by ear.
1: It could have been. Uh, it's a
2: connection in the brain that I guess never well, happened. No, again. it
1: is. It is. And, and I had a question related to that because, sure. and, and it's interesting, Mark, that you say that because I, I would sense that folks back then may not have had the funds to have lessons to teach mm-hmm. exactly how the music. So or we'll just play buy like this. By the sheet. Music. Yeah. Did. Playing by ear and then learning how to read music, did that interrupt your fingering or your chops at any point? I don't have
0: any memory of that. I I think for me, learning by ear actually did me a lot of favors working as a professional. And I am able to sight read really well. And part of that was, I think, because I had to teach myself how to read the notes. So that was at an early age, I had to get used to quickly identifying what I'm looking at on the page. Mm -hmm. But in terms of learning by ear, I do a lot of collaborative playing. I play with singers and I play with instrumentalists in addition to the solo work that I do. And just having that background of you're, you're always listening to adjust, is valuable for stuff like that I People always comment when they see me collaborate with people You don't really look at them that yeah. much And I said, I don't have to You can anticipate what someone's going to do Because I always say that the eyes react But the ears anticipate mm-hmm. And if you're looking at someone You're always going to be just a little bit late mm-hmm. In terms of what's going right. on So I, I like to just listen mm-hmm. for where it sounds like they're going In terms of the timing And it's always a little bit more accurate Being together with the ensemble And then I I feel like I'm I don't know. A lot more open to creative ideas because I learned by ear too. I think if you if your entire music education is just do this, do that, it's this note, not that note, stuff like that. It, it's a bit of a different approach to music than if you're just saying, okay, play this. Right. And I was very lucky. I, I grew up in the church, and religion's not quite as important to me now, but it's that's the environment that I had growing up, mm-hmm. and I had to play a lot of fake book stuff, just mm-hmm. looking at chord symbols, right. lead sheets, and that's been incredibly valuable for me too, because right. we all musicians have mishaps on stage when there's a performance. There's always something. You rarely ever give a performance, and you think, okay, 100% everything. Yeah. And having those kinds of situations where you're used to improvising, you're used to mm-hmm. making something up on the spot. It's so useful for everyone's always told me, you know, you, you cover so well for anything goes wrong. And I said, I'm just used to coming up with stuff.
1: What do you want me to stop? But yeah, I'm not going to stop <laughs> right. and say oops,
0: really. Yeah, exactly. You, don't, you can't stop and say oops. You have to just play it off. And that's half the performance. We're actors on stage as much as we oh, are yeah. musicians. And that's the thing that – I wish more music education would cover, at least for performers people who are interested in performing is that you're selling a story up there right. it's not even if you're doing what I do which is just there's no words it's just notes it's just sound right. there's a there's an arc there's a narrative there's a story there yeah. and so when um, you look at someone on stage and it, it, there's certain schools of thought just to how I think there's some people that and I get where they're coming from that they think okay you don't want to distract from the music so you don't want to be too animated on stage you don't want to be too much making it about you but I think there's a balance to be had in terms terms of there's a visual. Sure component. It's an inner
1: expression. Yeah,
0: exactly. And people want to see that. I always say, if I'm having a good time, you guys are having a good time. So I like to, I like to show if there's a moment that I particularly enjoy in the music, maybe I'll smile a little bit or I'll show that I'm pleased. Or if it's a really intense section, I'll sort of furrow my brow or, Mm -hmm. and it's not often really that intentional. I think sometimes we musicians just follow what's happening dramatically. That's right. But I, it's just so important to connect with an audience on that level and to let them know that this is a dramatic experience, that this is a narrative that's going on. I grew up with a lot of musical theater in the house too. My sister, for the longest time, did have aspirations to get into musical theater. She was in the Muni for, I think, just maybe one season, but she was, she loves, we all mm-hmm. love theater in my mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. And I think that also has influenced how I approach some of my music making as well. So I'm a very proud, amalgamation of all these different kinds of styles and genres. And I just happen to be a classical pianist, but I like to think that I bring a lot of different influences into what I do as a concert pianist.
1: No, I I think that gives you a very, and like you stated, a a really rare perspective and rare kind of combination of things that make you as talented as you are at this point in your life. Sure. I think that's pretty incredible. So let's listen a little bit We'll sit you down at the piano here at the Studio Steinway. Le
0: Grand Steinway. Yeah.
1: And tell us a little bit about this Beethoven, because you're going sure. to be playing this at the uh, Chamber Music yes, Society. Yes,
0: absolutely. November 22nd and 23rd at 730 at the Sheldon Concert Hall, I will be making my solo debut with the Chamber Music Society of St. Louis. What I did for them last year with Maestro Slacken was a virtual experience. We were still in the throes of the pandemic. And so this is a live performance that is taking place. It's called Fantastic Classic and you can learn more about that their website is chambermusicstl.org, I believe. And um, so this is happening November 22nd, 23rd. And uh I am playing a solo piece and an ensemble piece. And the solo piece I'm playing is this Beethoven sonata. It's one of the most famous of the Beethoven sonatas. It's his 23rd sonata in F minor, Opus 57, A And Beethoven didn't give it that title. People just thought it would sell. Someone gave it that title to, you know, <laughs> hopefully make it. But, but he, I don't, I, I, as far as I know, he didn't object to this title. So I, it's like the Moonlight Sonata. Beethoven didn't call it the Moonlight Sonata, but someone gave it the title and it stuck. And I think there's nothing wrong with with enjoying the title. Anyway, this piece is incredible. And there's a reason why it's one of the most famous Beethoven sonatas. It's incredibly intense. It's incredibly full of, for lack of a better term, passion Mm. in the piece. And it was written during a time that was really momentous for Beethoven, because the what we know about Beethoven, the most famous thing we know about Beethoven is that he went deaf, right? So that's the big triumphing over this struggle that he had. This piece was written around the time that he realized he was going deaf. Mm. And he actually wrote what's called the Heiligenstadt Testament, which was essentially his suicide note to the world. He was not interested in living anymore Mm. when he realized he was going deaf. And so he wrote this note. And Someone in his family, someone helped him through this time that he didn't. He went on and it's out of this dark time that he writes some of his most incredible music, including this piece. Mm -hmm. So it sounds very, it's a very dark piece. It Mm -hmm. sounds very dark, but Mm -hmm. I like to think of it as there's a lot of triumphing over really terrible time in his life in this piece. So what I brought was the opening three minutes of the first movement of this piece. So this is the first notes that you hear of this Beethoven sonata. And I'll let you guys play it, and we can just talk about it a little bit after in terms of what you so hear. So
1: here we go. This is Brian Woods, pianist, performing on the Studio Steinway, Beethoven <laughs> sonata in F minor, opus 57, Beethoven and very nice. Thank We're you. Done. Bravo. Bravo. I'm glad we tuned up that studio Steinway oh, for yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, it's a great shape. N- now, yeah. now, folks, to be serious. That was a pre-recording. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Arnold.
2: <laughs> You're not supposed to tell. No,
1: you have to be honest about uh, it. You have to be honest. That about was it. great. You Thank can you. really that hear really a lot good. of his a lot of thematic things that he's carried through other pieces. In oh, absolutely. Piece. We call
0: it the fate motive, right. which is the fifth symphony. Da 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 da. Yeah, you know, that exactly, sort of right. thing. And it's da, da It's the same exact oh. kind of thing. And Beethoven is just so well known for taking just the tiniest idea mm-hmm. and spreading it all over the piece.
1: So you get da, uh, and it's just all over the piece. He had Little Hmm. Star Spangled Banner in there, too. Yeah, exactly. But it's just, it's it's an
0: interesting experience playing this piece because it's one of the more well-known of the Beethoven sonatas. And you go in playing for an audience and you never know what their knowledge level in terms of the repertoire is. So you never know if they've heard this piece 8,000 times. They've never heard it before or they've heard it maybe... 20 years ago, and they haven't heard it since. So it's really a great experience to play music like this. Because as I said before, my job up there is to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And the story is the same regardless of whatever if person's heard it before or never heard it or that sort of thing. And so the piece is, um, this piece is about 23 minutes long, the Beethoven is and I play it from memory. And which is Amazing. N- normally what I do in solo recitals is Amazing. I play the music from memory. But this so- piece is it's become a dear friend. I've played it a lot recently over yeah. the years. So yeah. it, I'm very excited to present it. And we actually, Mark Gordon, who is the, the director of the Chamber Music Society of St. Louis, which is what I'm playing oh. with in a few weeks. I met him, I want to say 2018. And then I think we decided on this program in like early 2019. Wow. And it was supposed to take place in right when the pandemic right. started. Right. So this is a bit of a reschedule. But you know, I've been living with this piece. I studied it a long time ago, but I brought it back. In anticipation of an early 2020 concert, and now I'm giving it at the end of 2021. Now, I've been living with this piece for a while. Like I said, it's become a very kind of dear friend. So mm-hmm. I'm just I'm so excited to be presenting it for the audience. And it just what is
1: weekend. what is the thing memorizing for pianists? Other why do we do it? Yeah, because vocalists do that too. Yeah, you know, and you have but... two people to blame for that. All right, and name them. The, let's let's, let's name we're them. We're naming names.
2: That's right. <laughs> we're here. This is Run by we're, the Cannon. For yeah. my
1: clarinet uh, recital, I didn't memorize that. Or right. you know, when he had Chuck, Chuck Sype in here oh, and yeah. talking about uh, when he was playing his, his trumpet um, oh, right. stuff with uh, the organist, that wasn't memorized. You uh-huh. know? Yeah, so you got two folks to, to blame for this. All right, I'm going to write this down. Yeah. Who are they?
0: Their names are Clara Schumann. Oh, Clara. I know Clara. And then Franz Liszt. Okay. And so these guys were not, my memory of the history of this is a little fuzzy, so I might get a couple things out of order. But my understanding was, oftentimes the way that things would work back in the day, and by the day of seventeen, eighteen hundreds, was that people would play for music in general. And it was actually thought of as disrespectful to play without the music because you said better than the composer and you can remember the music and everything. So Claire Schumann was – we're learning now not to really describe her as the wife of Robert Schumann because she's really – we're in this – era of scholarship where we're recognizing she was an incredible person in her own there's no reason why we need to just describe her as someone's wife. She was one of the most popular concert pianists in Europe of her time she was a virtuoso, a fantastic composer and all while I think she had six kids or something like that that she was having to maintain all of this at the same time and so she star in europe and she was one of the first to introduce this idea of i'm gonna play without the music Hmm. franz Liszt was living at the same time as her he was another he was i call him the jimi hendrix of classical piano he Hmm. was the the showman he could you know play the socks off of anyone he really could show off like no one else could an incredible composer though in his own and just some of the most fabulous piano music came from franz Liszt. but he also um decided to and i think list was also the one who decided to turn the piano to a profile Mm. for concerts. so it used to be the back of the pianist would be to the audience and the pianist would just play and i guess people would just be fine with that it seems so foreign to us because we're so used to the idea of a piano being in in profile but list wanted all the gals in the audience to be able to see his profile so he (laughs) wanted to see the face
1: no weren't they a thing Oh, and Schumann Clara. and
0: Clara. I have no knowledge if that was the case because uh, I thought she had. You're kind thinking of Brahms, I think. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, because okay. Brahms was the protege of Robert Schumann. Okay,
1: that's that's the one.
0: Clara's husband, yep. and they were kind of having a little fling.
2: They. He's uh, always starting rumors.
0: Yeah, three
1: hundred year old rumors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: what we know is that Brahms had a, had a big crush on on Clara, and that's another story for another time. oh yeah. it is.
1: We're talking to pianist Brian Woods. He's going to be performing a program the Fantastic Classics at the Sheldon. Yeah, at the Sheldon. That's November 22nd and 23rd. There is a virtual concert November 30th. If you want tickets, you can go to MetroTix or you can go to chambermusicstl.org and you can get some information there. He's going to be performing the Beethoven Sonata in F minor and also going to be accompanying for the Haydn String Trio in G major and the Brahms Piano Quartet in G minor. And you've also got a master class coming up here in, a, in couple a couple days.
0: a couple days, yeah, on Monday at the 560 Music Center Tell us at WashU. Yeah, this is part of Chamber Music Society's mission is to also provide some educational opportunities for for students and they they provide master classes which is student plays teacher gives thoughts just in front of an audience and i've been as i'm entering i'm in the very early stages of my professional career but this has been something that i'm doing more and more is giving master classes and it's you feel a little like in a weird place because you're what do I have to give to these kids? You're getting of, old. Yeah, you. but in terms of, <laughs> but it's always a lot of fun. I like to say it's, I like to do master classes from my perspective because I'm still someone who is practicing, performing, traveling. Mm-hmm. I'm not this professor who's been teaching for 50 years at some mm-hmm. university. And so I'm giving my perspective on so seems like works for me. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes I'm saying if I was working on this piece, I, I would do this. I'd play it this way. Mm-hmm. I'd pedal it this way. Mm-hmm. In terms of, so I, I like to f- I hope that the kids feel like it's so I try to treat them like a colleague mm-hmm. as opposed to someone then that I, I know so much more than I try to keep it light. I try to keep it fun. And I just gave one for uh, Slamto, which is the St. Louis Area Music Teachers Association last month. okay And then I I think I, I gave one on one of my tour locations, too. And so this is really exciting. And we're still, uh, I think, finalizing some of the students. I know Wash you. I I can't speak to anyone's vaccine policy for entering premises. I mm-hmm. think WashU has a vaccine mm-hmm. policy. I know the Sheldon does, and I mm-hmm. want people to be aware of that if they're coming, planning on coming to the concert, that they will want proof of, of vaccination right. to, to right. come in. But yeah, it's very exciting. It's four p.m. on on Monday, the the fifteenth, at at WashU.
1: What do you remember about a masterclass that you participated in? Oh,
0: they're horrifying to, to <laughs> play to play in. That's the easy answer because look, think of it this way: not only are you playing for Probably a teacher you n- might know and respect. You're playing for undoubtedly some of your peers. You're playing for undoubtedly some people in the community who, when you're young, the people in your close community are everything. To I'm at the point where I travel so much that so sometimes you play and you're like, well, I'm moving on. So if it doesn't go great, that sort of thing. But yeah. in terms of master classes, I've done a lot of them. I actually I did I was doing master classes up until just a couple of years ago. I was still doing it when I was at various degree levels, mm-hmm. and they're always nerve wracking because it's you feel like. Um, you're, you're having to prove yourself mm-hmm. and you're hoping for, I've had situations where I've played in master classes and you can tell the teacher didn't like anything I did. Mm-hmm. And then I did a master class just a couple of years ago for a really famous teacher and he was like, I really like everything you're doing. Huh. And so it's just, which makes for a short master class, but really? in terms of you really feel good about yourself. So it just, it really can make or break your self-esteem, some of these master classes. And that's mm-hmm. why I really try. In my master classes, to just keep it light, mm-hmm. keep it fun for, for the students, because there's no reason why these kids should feel like what I think about their playing somehow has some bearing on mm-hmm. their level of success right. or accomplishment. So I always say, whenever I say something and I can see the kid kind of combusting inside, right, you know, I just right. said, do what your teacher says. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's, I'm one person, I'm one perspective. I'm not going to make or break this kid's career if they want to be a performer. I'm just here to give some thoughts, and we're here to have a good time. So that's what I try to communicate when I'm there for Masterclass.
1: Brian, discuss for a a little bit what the the difference at the tipping point between technicality and musicality, where you get scales under your fingers, arpeggios and everything like that, and yet somebody can technically play, but there is a tipping point when – you really understand what the composer is trying to communicate, Mm -hmm. i.e. what you said at the beginning, where I'm communicating a story, Mm -hmm. I'm telling a story here. And the music is vibrating with this emotion in certain Mm -hmm. portions of it. So where was that for you? And I'll be curious about that. Yeah, sure.
0: The the cool thing about music is that in the reason why we do teach scales and arpeggios and all that when we're kids is that all music is just that. I mean, it's just some sort of organization, scales and arpeggios. I haven't really had a formal studio for much of my career. I think one year, I used to live in Kansas City, and I did have for about, about a year I had a formal studio. And I'll admit a lot of my students when I, I inherited a lot of the students and a lot of them left right when I started because I was making them do skills in ar- arpeggios and the, the teacher before me didn't, which every teacher is different. And right. he this person was free to do what they do what they wanted. But I grew up, I... After my grandma, I went to a, a woman whose name was uh, Margaret Quito, who lived in Kirkwood, who I studied with. She's since passed, but every lesson I came in, there was a technical expectation. I had to do whether it was a scale, arpeggio, on a hand and exercises means anything to you. These sort of technical things. That was how I started every lesson. In terms of my own relationship with technique and musicality, there's a lot. That it's a very complicated conversation. I think what helps a lot of students is listening to as much music as possible when they're young. And it doesn't have to be classical. It can be, like I said, I was feeling very lucky to, I listened to a lot of musical theater soundtracks. We used to listen to Dolly Parton on road trips, just all these kind of song storytellers. Mm -hmm. And I like to think that I inherited a lot of my musicality from listening to those people as much as I did listening to a lot of the great, you know, classical performers. I'll admit I'm a bit of an iconoclast though sometimes in some of my interpretations. I like to push the boundary just a little bit sometimes on, on how I do things because first of all, it just keeps it fun and interesting for me. And second of all, every artist has their own interpretation of something and that's just mine. I don't want to copy anyone. Right. I don't want to be a someone who does things necessarily just because they're told this is how Beethoven is done. I'm very, I was very lucky to have John O'Connor as a mentor, there would be times that I'd come into lessons, and I'd play things a certain way. And he would tell me to do the opposite. And I'd say, No, I want to do it this way, because of x, y, and z. And he said, Okay, well, just convince me. Mm -hmm. So as long as you're convincing people, of something, that's the the important thing. And you don't really have to be right or wrong, per se. So I, I always tell students, listen to listen to I love opera. I love musical theater. I love pop music. Just listen to music and get out of the practice room because that's how you really get exposed to stuff that is going to give you a sense of that musicality. I will say this too, though. There were some people who said when I was young that, which this never occurred to me as a problem that I had, but apparently some people did think that I wasn't as musical when I played when I was young because I think I was too much in my head of... Just trying to accomplish everything at the instrument, trying to play all the right notes, trying to make sure I play all the right dynamics, trying to make sure everything was right there. And as I've gotten more comfortable at the instrument, as I've gotten older, I feel a lot more freedom to just express myself and make things just more beautiful people to listen to and more relatable.
1: And and I greatly appreciate what you said about the scales and arpeggios. All music is just built on that. Yeah. And you can, when then you, you sight read, you can see, oh, I see ahead. This is a chromatic scale. That's a diminished seventh. And it's, it's already... In muscle memory, so mm-hmm. then you can not focus as much on that, and, and know where's this going, mm-hmm. or and really understanding the intent of mm-hmm. how it, how it fits in the total. Yeah. You know, I, I appreciated that. Now, you talked about your mentors, mm-hmm. and I think mentors are important, especially it will in any field. But in, in music, you get a sense of heritage, mm-hmm. because it goes back to people who have studied with other people, who mm-hmm. have studied with other people, who have studied with other people, and they study with Beethoven, or, or whatever. It goes, it's like this lineage, mm-hmm. and what's the importance of that in your career so far? Hugely important.
0: I want to say John is only, John O'Connor's maybe, it's, I think it's only a handful of degrees of separation from Beethoven in terms of the, wow. the lineage. It's not far. Wow. He studied with Wilhelm Kempf who was a really famous Beethoven interpreter who himself was only a couple degrees from Beethoven himself. I hope John doesn't feel like I'm dating him by saying
1: <laughs> yeah. that He's but, saying you're old, John. Yeah, well <laughs> He
2: always
0: I always Just told kidding. the story. I always told the story about John because John was the the first Or his first big breaking out into the internationals, he won first prize at the Beethoven competition in Vienna in 1973. And the reason I know that date is because he judged the competition in 2017. And he told me, when they introduced him, they said that he won in 1937. Ooh. and he said, I'm not that old. Yeah. That was the story as he tells it. But anyway, in terms of mentors, they're hugely important, really, as you said, in any field, and especially when you're taking private lessons, it's one on one with a teacher, but they teach you so much more than just the music. John taught me so much about just how to write a respectful professional email or how to he inspired me so much to make my own career path for myself. When I got back to the States, when I was living in Canada, I actually wasn't planning on coming back. I thought I was going to have a visa situation that worked out in Canada, and it totally felt through last minute. Mm. So I didn't decide to come back until April. And I was coming back a month and a half later. I had no job. I had nothing set up except for I did have this Chamber Music Society, you know, engagement in November. But that was all I had. Excuse me. So I just I think I sent 300 emails to every single presenter, orchestra, concert series person I knew and just said, look, I'm coming back. Here's a recording. I'd love to play with you guys. And the level of response was fantastic. And most of the people who responded have said... I had no, how would I have known who you were if you didn't write me, right. You know? Right. And so John was so inspirational in that sense of he really was a mentor in terms of it wasn't just play it that loud play it that fast or something. Mm -hmm. It was also, while he's one of the best teachers on the planet for something like that, he's also incredible for just being an example of how to live a life in music as a Mm -hmm. professional, as a kind person. Mm -hmm. He's a great guy. And, uh, but I've had other mentors too. I studied with Robert Weirich, who was a guy I studied with at University of Missouri in Kansas City. And he was an incredible mentor too. I did my master's with him and, and he taught me a lot of just various life lessons about how to pace myself, how Mm -hmm. not to push myself too hard to where I'm running on empty and I'm not able to give good performances because Mm -hmm. I'm trying to do too much. And then my teacher in undergrad, his name was Craig Neese. He was an incredible guy as well who just taught me to fall in love with the narrative of the music that's going on in the story. It's so funny because we get so hung up, especially in this country, we get very hung up about institutions. Mm -hmm. You want to hear that someone went to Juilliard. You want to hear that someone went to you know the fancy school, right? right? I really haven't gone to like those names of schools but the mentors that i've been with have been just on such another level right that i feel like i've been so prepared for living a professional life in music because the mentors that i've had have been so influential and so such a positive influence in my life so
2: is, is it brian woods are you mentoring anyone not currently
0: Okay. But these master classes are fun sort of bite sized mentor sessions, I think, in mm-hmm. terms of giving kids, and I'm, I always tell the kids afterwards, here's my website, you can come find me, and, and we, I'm happy to talk to you about whatever, normally it's the parents I'm talking to at right, right. these sorts of things, but we've all been We've all been in these situations where we don't know what to do and I ask the kids generally whenever I finish, I said, is anyone thinking of just majoring in music or cause I have tons of ideas mm-hmm. for people like that. And a lot of times it depends on how old the kid is, if they're getting close to that age or something like that, but I always just want to let myself be a resource for people and well, um, might be a little afraid of you too. <laughs> because I'm also a big level. guy. I know I have to, <laughs> I always it's try to what... sit as soon as I, I try to sit as soon it's as I can. I, mean. I know, I know, but, <laughs> but I, I try to always, you really
2: are. I'd and like I to think hope that so. helps.
0: Yeah, it does. Cause you,
2: you're very well-rounded. You know what Thanks. you're doing on the Ivory. The, the
0: thing was, I didn't, I didn't have this illustrious prodigy bringing where I was okay. touring the world as an eight year old. And so I'm, I don't have those expectations of other so down to earth <laughs> guy, everybody.
2: What,
1: yeah, hey, spread it's the it's word. A- <laughs> He's
0: down to earth. But yeah, and I'd be doing a terrible job if I didn't mention the website, which is brianwoodspianist.com. But I'd love for, I love to hear from people. I love to just talk about music and communicate about this. And again, I feel so lucky to be able to do this. I, no one in my family thought I was going to be doing this. And I have some music, as I said, in the background, but no one thought I was going to be doing this. So the fact that I am getting concerts and touring, every time I tell my parents, they're always like, oh. Okay, great. Well, because no one has had any idea really what my level was. Because uh-huh. I was just playing in school and playing for my friends and family. And so you never know until you put yourself out there. Right. How marketable are you? Are people going to be interested in hearing you play? Right. And so it's been a really pleasant surprise since i've been back in st louis that i've been getting this much interest from not just locally but also right. i have several engagements in in i have one and i'm playing a mozart concerto with an orchestra in virginia in march i'm getting interest from orchestras all over the country who are and this is for booking potentially three four five years out Wow! but it's that's very typical in my field that we book pretty yeah. far in advance again you never know until you approach people and just say look Here I am.
1: That speaks to the level of where you are, though. And I think about athletics. I think about track and field and somebody who's just running around a track or running down doing a 100-meter dash. And, yeah, gee, by the way, I I did that in 9.1. Man, why aren't you in the Olympics? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so for you to be able to be doing those things and having those invitations – I think it really speaks to the level. It is exciting
2: because he's so young. You really are, Brian. I, I don't know how old you are. I don't always are.
1: feel like it, but yeah. But I, <laughs> I bet.
2: But it's nice to have a younger generation, a younger right. Right. pianist just right. coming up and... I think it's a gift you have a, thank you I mean that's the gift.
0: fun of something like Chamber Music Society where I'm playing with so I'm playing with three of folks from the symphony so the, mm-hmm. the it's a quartet It's, a, it's a, and I I, I shudder the I, shud, the I shudder to use the word accompanying what I'm doing for this Brahms piece because it is out of this world difficult level of, mm-hmm. of playing for yeah, me right. so it's it's a huge showpiece for the pianist but their names are it's Ju Kim Chris Tantolo and James Cheshevsky. these are the it's the violinist violist and cellist that I'm playing with and they're all all season members of the symphony that I'm playing with. And it's a both and I get to work with these people and collaborate, but I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot. Pinch yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot from working with these people. Uh And I, In conversations I've had with Maestro Slacken and just other people in the St. Louis area, we have an embarrassment of riches in the St. Louis area in terms Uh, of arts culture and people who are here. (laughs) And so just those interactions that I've had. And I just met the other other week at the symphony, Um, Stephanie Childress, who's the new um, associate conductor, the new symphony conductor, just moved here from the U.K., and it that story is funny because I, the, Yefim Vronfman was here about a month ago as a world famous pianist playing the Rachmaninoff Third Concerto, and I studied this piece last year, so I admittedly was getting a little bit into the music during the performance. I was doing a little bit of air piano, and I saw <laughs> I, I knew air guitar. Yeah, I've never heard of air. We're f- just getting a little into okay, it. Okay, all right. <laughs> and I saw I see Stephanie a few weeks later. I knew who she was, and but we never met. And she comes up to me and she says. You're a pianist, right? And I said, how do you know? She says, I saw you doing air piano during that <laughs> concert. And I said, that was four weeks ago. She goes, do you see anyone else around here doing air piano? I said, no. no. She goes, it's stuck in my head. Right. Those kinds of things are always like a fun way to meet people. But we have an incredible number of people. Stefan Denev who's heading the symphony now, yeah. just he's a rock star. He's yes. amazing. And these interactions I've had with people, getting to the point where I'm just out of school, technically, I just finished at the Royal Conservatory in Toronto. And I'm at the point where I'm like talking to people and I'm like, we're colleagues we're both in (laughs) in the biz you know and so it's you're used to making it like a oh i'm i'm just a student don't think too much of me and now i'm at this place where you know i could be in a position where i could invite john o'connor to come and give a concert and that could be something that i'm helping to curate and which of course i'm trying to do because he's given me so much that i'm really trying I'm like how can i get john here to give a concert and and to do something but um no, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, like you said, I'm pinching myself just constantly. Yeah. It just feels like this dream that I had on a peripheral as a kid, yeah. everyone wants to be a star for a mm-hmm. bit of their childhood, and I never thought it would happen for me. It was just, I was constant. I have been told every step of the way by someone, you really shouldn't pursue this, why don't you settle down, oh. Oh, really, I wouldn't push yourself, this may, be not, may not be the thing for I've been told by a lot of no, people along the way. And maybe, as I said, I'm just a rebel. Maybe I'm just a of Glad you maybe. are. <laughs> and, but I just kept going, and it's worked out. Yeah. So I, I could not be – again, I, I encourage people to head over to my website because I have a lot of recordings, and my updated schedule is there a lot. So you can see where I'm going to play. But pianist.com So they can hear more of me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's hear a little bit more of him. He, uh, we're going to do the – Schumann, great. And uh, tell us a little bit about yeah. this. Yeah.
0: This piece is titled Arabesque, which is, we know in several different contexts. I mean, it's a ballet, a, a move in ballet. It's, uh, But it also just means a decorative thing. And Schumann wrote this piece. He was, I think, in his mid-20s, and he wasn't... Having a lot of success as a composer because his music was obtuse and difficult for everyone to understand. So he wanted to write something that was just agreeable that people would enjoy. But this piece is episodic. So what happens is you get an opening section that you'll hear me play at the beginning, a really contrasting kind of minor section. And then when the clip cuts off, we're returning back to the original section. This recording is from my debut in Kerner Hall that I did in Toronto. So this is um, an, an enormous space. You can't quite hear it because the mics are close, but this is, I was very happy with how this particular recording came out so I hope you guys enjoy it and
1: how we might do this is play part of that and then yeah. get it down so we can continue yeah, to talk absolutely. if you want to get more of Brian's information it's BrianWoodsPianist.com BrianWoodsPianist.com and also he again he's going to be performing November 22nd and 23rd the Fantastic Classics and going to be Beethoven, Haydn, and Brahms and that's going to be at the Sheldon you can get more information by going to com to buy tickets or you can go to chambermusicstl.org those are live concerts the 22nd and 23rd there is a virtual concert on November 30th and COVID protocols are you bring? make sure you bring your proof of vaccination with you to the performances so let's Let's sum up here. I've got a lot more questions, but we're running out of time. And I enjoy talking to a fellow musician. And one thing I always ask of musicians or theater people or even athletes is, what suggestions do you have for the budding pianist or Mm -hmm. the budding musician? Because it sounds like people really discouraged you from doing what you're doing, maybe because they thought it's a a one-in-a-million chance Mm -hmm. of getting through it. But for the person who maybe is there or who's just starting or is considering that or even if they don't they just love playing piano what words of encouragement do you have sure it doesn't mean
0: anything if you don't and if you're not i always say like i said earlier if you're not having a good time who else is having a good time you've got to you've got to enjoy it that's one of the things that i'm so grateful for in my life was that because i wasn't this prodigy who went head first into a big performance career i have many friends who work prodigies who went headfirst into a performance career and they struggle in their adult life with keeping the fire going because Mm -hmm. it's just been full throttle their entire lives and that's hard to maintain for anyone so i feel so lucky that i was able to and maybe this is an encouragement is to just do things at your own pace there's no reason why you should have to go faster than you feel like you can handle or if you feel like you're going too slow there's nothing wrong what we did my family and I did was we felt that one teaching situation was just not preparing me well enough for the next step. So we went and start, found a new teacher. And me. that's a good point. There's nothing right. look, you want to keep good professional relationships, you want to you want to keep everyone in a happy place. Mm-hmm. But in terms of it's your life, you have to you have to make decisions that are right for you. I think that's just so important for the young musicians. And don't be afraid. Oh, Don't be afraid to ask for help. Please ask for help. That was one of the things. I have a really good friend, Gessling, who is a friend of my dad's, but she also works for Catholic Charities here in town. And she just mentored me on all things getting out in the professional world, networking, working with people. And she's been an incredible resource. And I ask her for help all the time. Hey, I got this email. I'm not sure how to respond. It's just that kind of stuff. Ask for help. That's an important thing. But at the end of the day, the important thing is you love what you do, and you're you're up to telling a story.
1: That's great advice. Love what you do, and tell a story.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Do is, what you
1: love. That is, yeah. Do what you love. That's what I think our parents instilled in us is uh, find something you love to do, and you'll never work a day in your life. But we never paid attention. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself, Mark. We knew better. Knox Grant. <laughs> <hole, cramp. laughs> we all knew better. <laughs>
2: What a delight to have you here. Yeah, Thank Brian, you, guys, for,
1: for having
0: coming.
2: me. Yeah, this is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Such a pleasure. It really is. Yes. So
1: really. the Fantastic Classics, that's November the 22nd and 23rd at the Sheldon. Go to chambermusicstl.org for more information. Also, Brian has a master class this Monday, and you can also go to that same website to find that information, or go to his website, brianwoodspianist.com, brianwoodspianist.com. Brian, thanks for coming on St. Yeah. Louis Tune. Thank
2: you for having me. Okay. Yeah, I- I want to go to the Sheldon, and see you in the Sheldon. I think that'd be great.
1: You know, live music back is oh. just so vibrant. It's oh. a very
2: intimate place to oh, the Sheldon. Oh, it is. So, so it is. Small and intimate and good acoustics, I think. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Not I a bad seat they, in the house. I think yeah. they got a grant to do renovation, too. Oh, good. I believe, so now I it was the Sheldon.
2: Okay, good, good.
1: We're happy that you joined us this hour. We always like highlighting local talented uh, individuals, especially talented musicians, since I'm a A musician myself, back in the day. That's right. We are glad you listened to this episode of St. Louis In Tune. Please share this podcast or tell a friend. St. Louis In Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis In Tune, I'm Arnold Strickland.